0: Welcome to SFCT. You're listening to a podcast of a presentation given at the Orienting Solutions Conference held in October 2013 at the University of Hertfordshire. For more information, go to www.asfct.org. The following is Professor Dan Hutto's presentation on an active narrative practices, how and why they matter. Let's, um, let, me, let me swiftly put you in mind of some of the questions I would love to get some of the questions that were asked like what's a theory as we get on to this later I don't think one of the interesting things about Wittgenstein, I'll mention him here, uh, I've written books on Wittgenstein um, I write papers on Wittgenstein but in my world in the academy, uh, some parts of philosophy are very down on Wittgenstein because they have a mainstream view that seems to think that's passe, we've learnt everything we can from Wittgenstein already and such like One interesting point that Wittgenstein makes is that he's interested in philosophy, not theory. And his position aligns more closely with pragmatism. So he's not offering a professed theory much more like Socrates. So there are points of connection those last two questions that uh, uh, raised that I think could be addressed further. What I want to do very quickly, as quick as I possibly can, is give you some further overview and some of the uh, recent developments in cognitive science and how that interfaces with philosophy and how that, I think, interfaces with questions on two levels, I think. One is the potential for these new ways of thinking to alter your actual practice or get you to think about the practice that you've already got that's up and running and working. So that that's one issue. Uh, and there might be nuances there or questions about expanding that practice. And we've actually had done a lot of work, um, to be honest, with other... Uh, we're not isolated philosophers. Our unit has worked with people in, uh, across Europe, as was mentioned in these projects. And we've actually shaped practice with the people who work with autism and schizophrenia, much more clinically based um, models, where those have, uh, models have proven effective. So I'll bring some of those little thoughts in the very background here, and you'll see that popping up. Um, there is a bigger issue. I think the bigger issue is the one that Mark was highlighting is how does this all stand within a wider world that thinks uh, what's the future direction and what's the best possible direction for therapy in general, right? And I think in the background, the question of these sorts of therapies over and against medical models, I think is probably where a lot of the academic discussion really has to come into play. So that last comment about like where are we are going to get the grant money, who's going to uh, treat this seriously without an evidence base and such like, this is where we need to reshape thinking at a fundamental level philosophically about people who make decisions and who make decisions about what's the best way to spend money or focus energy in terms of therapy. So I think this is where the philosophy could potentially help. I'll give you a health warning as we go along because, of course, some of the ideas that we're talking about are still emerging. They're not the mainstream, but they may well become the mainstream in the next 10 to 15 years. And there are signs that thinking is shifting. There isn't established scientific fact about how we understand the mind and its relation to the brain. There isn't. There are lots of different facts that then get shifted around, and if you go forward, some of the things that we take for granted now will be in hazard. That's where philosophy gets interesting. Okay, so let me give you some background, provided this works. I want to talk about two broad philosophical frameworks. Marx's introduction was actually very good. This representationalist versus the inactivist kind of view, a cognitivism, as it were, and I want to get a quote here from a book that's um, a rare book, and it's a nice book, on um, it's called psychiatry in the scientific image. It's a rare case where a philosopher is actually doing philosophy psychiatry, and in it we find this very useful quote as a nice prelude um, to give you a kind of sense of the big schism in some thinking that's going on. Uh, Murphy, uh, who happens to be at the University of Sydney, writes: um, "Some pictures of the mind stress embodiment very heavily, citing some philosophers and cognitive scientists." Others prescind from the details of our embodiment to stress a more purely computational theory of the mental. What counts as the mental depends in part on who is right in these debates. So that's pretty big stakes. How we actually think about the mind is a question philosophers and collective scientists are now wondering about. It's actively under discussion. It's not settled in any respect. If we need to include facts about our embodied nature to explain the functions that allow us to behave intelligently, the scope of the mental will probably contain more in the way of movement and physical action than it would if more narrowly computational treatments do the best explanatory job. So that's pretty transformative, right? If we're going to have to include parts of our activity, our interactions, as part of our, our mind, not as something that's just a product, uh, or as I like to put it, to put this simply, if our bodies aren't just meat suits that we kind of don in the same way that uh, Welly and uh, H.G. Wells' Martians wear bodies. They swap, they're just heads. They swap from body to body, mechanic suits. Uh, it wouldn't much matter what the instructions coming from the brain are doing all the intelligent work. There's been a big movement against this to think the way that we're actually embodied is part of our intelligence. I'll come back to this in a moment. Sorry there's some weird bits come up. This is the swapping from Mac, I think, to PC. PC is obviously punishing me for having used a Mac uh, <laughs> uh, Cognitivism well it's very popular and it's been the main I'd say it is the mainstream view and there are plenty of adherents to it in fact it's the dominant position about the nature of the mind and has been for a long long time and not just back to the 50s with Alan Turing, Okay, that's just naive this is old stuff this is old magic um, today's Cognitivism revised ancient rationalist thinking a model of the mind uh, Leading, uh, what it does now is it leans towards a new impersonalized computational theory of the mind. This isn't Freud. This isn't subconscious. This is the subpersonal. You don't even have access to your mind. You don't. So all you're talking to other people, that's froth on the cappuccino. Yeah, the, the real espresso is stuff that's behind the scenes gurring about. Okay, that's the best way I can do that quickly. Uh. <laughs> How old is this? Well, it goes much further than this, but it's really got its heyday in the 17th century. Descartes conceived of the materials of thinking as representation in the contemporary sense. And Hobbes was the first to clearly articulate the idea that thinking is operations performed on representations. As he said, reason tis but reasoning tis but reckoning. It's just mechanical adding up. So the processes are mechanical computational, and the things that they are manipulating are representations of the world. Here we have two of the dominating ideas of all subsequent cognitive thought. The mind contains and is a system for manipulating representations. Really powerful stuff. The computational theory of mind updated popularizes this this very old idea, and by the way, it goes back further than Descartes. It just happens to be, that was when it got its big launch, um, or new launch. Wearing its new garb, contemporary cognitivism still assumes that, quote, this is from a textbook, The mind represents and computes. That's its two primary activities. That's what minds are. Bodies and everything else, unsurprisingly, are just stuff to be moved about. They're they're things to order about, to shift about. They don't do any thinking. They're not intelligent in and of themselves, right? That's the simplest version of that. So what we have here, and this is a more up-to-date remark, but it's very, very common to find this in any cognitive science book, Um, the manipulation use of representations is the primary the rudimentary the basic job of the mind that's what minds are it's what they do so what you get from that is what matters is how the subject represents the world not how the world actually is and not how the subject interacts with the world it's how they think about it that's the core thing and there are lots of therapies that might target what's thought about rather than um, how, how you respond to things These assumptions promote internalism and nowadays neurocentrism, right? So it moves from, you don't have to think that the brain is where these things are housed, but you're going to if you think about this for a moment. If you thought there are representations, people are going to push those back into the head. There are ways of responding to the world. There are lots of familiar arguments for thinking, this has to be right. Whenever, by the way, here's a thing Wittgenstein can teach you, whenever you think this must be right, how could it be otherwise? That just shows you have a little deficit in your imagination. Right? That just means you can't think the other side of an argument. As he says, there are no musts in philosophy. Always look to the other possibility that you just can't possibly imagine or tolerate. Okay, that's important. So we get this. The best explanation of behavior will only include a theory invoking property supervenient on, I'll skip the philosophical talk for the moment, upon the organism's current internal physical state. You want to look at what's inside the system because that's where the representations are. You don't care about anything beyond that. It's in the skin but actually it's not just in the skin it's in the skull, it's in the skull it's in the cranium. Okay. That's where you should go. So here's a quote and i just give you one example so you can see what the conflict is. Somebody raised the point about philosophy being combative but here's why. Certain of these ideas not that I care to combat other people, but ideas conflict. They exclude one another and they drive thinking. So here's a claim from the Sydney Morning Herald I just found this last night but this is, I think, where the danger comes in. These syndromes we call mental disorders are really just, nothing but, neural developmental disorders. When we begin to think of them in that way, it does change our focus, and that's important, right? This is the issue. Therapies to beat these conditions are not necessarily uh, do not necessarily have to rely on drugs, Okay, so that's not just pharmacology, that would be the only therapy, but they could use targeted targeted cognitive interventions, where that's going to mean targeting the brain. And this is exactly what this paper goes on to say. We need to target what's going on in the brain by whatever means, because that's where all the action is. The interaction is not out in the world, not between people, not in people's ways of thinking. It's entirely in the heads of living creatures. This is my um, PhD student's brain. Uh, she's just had it scanned Um I'm, 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 um, I'm hoping that's going to speed up the PhD. But, um, <laughs> so, but this is the kind of thing, I mean, I, have the, I just like the picture of it too, where you just think this is where the, you know, you can imagine that's where the thinking's going on. Um, and there's the finger pointing it out. You see it in every popular film. How could you avoid it? How could you avoid this in the general public when everywhere we think, you know, I can change all your memories, as in total recall, and send you on holiday, and you can stay in your chair? I can do that. Or I can get inside your dreams and change a little idea and alter your thinking. I don't need to deal with you or your body or your idea. I can just intervene on you as a a controlled mechanism if I could just get at your cognitive representations. So this is a very pervasive idea, and you're familiar with it. It's a dangerous idea. I think it's a dangerous idea, and it's very powerful. And it drives a certain view of social cognition, not just basic cognition. Cognitivism inspires a peculiar way of thinking about how we relate to others. If minds are always and everywhere representational, then understanding minds themselves, other minds, is always a matter of representing somebody else's representation. And what does that look like? Well, that inspires this very dominant view that um, the normal social cognition is made possible in some way or another by a theory of mind module, a device, I gave a lecture where I compared these to Tom-Toms for navigating the social world. They're little, and actually it works because they're called Toms. Theory of mind is uh, um, short for Tom. Um, so you need those sorts of things. And then you get this. Here's how it impacts on the clinical world. So I just want to make this as a quick, quick, quick gesture, and you can see how it might apply to your clinical work in this way. Uh, autism is often held up as the clinical evidence or perhaps the clinical justification is a more apt term of the notion of a theory of mind module. To see a person with autism, we are told, is to see what happens to a human being when the ability to mentalize, to attribute beliefs to other people is switched off. On the surface, this is neatly specific. It's clear that people with autism have severe difficulties in interacting in the social world. That's, um, that's, that's the evidence you were saying, that's un- unavoidable, the evidence of our eyes. Okay. And severe difficulty is exactly what one might expect from a failed theory of mind module. So that looks okay. So the theory of mind explanation seems to fit the facts. And once that seems to fit is left, um, seems is the the crucial word, it could, but that's not the only possibility. And if you treat that as the only possibility, where will you focus your energies? Uh, Well... I'll tell you, if you're the Autism Research Centre in Cambridge, and you're run by, Sir, you know, by Baron Cohen, not to be confused with his brother, who's probably better known, um, or oh, his brother and cousin, it's cousin I think, it's, I'm not sure. Anyway, they keep that relationship <laughs> on the low key. But mind blindness is a very influential view, uh, where he puts forward the idea that this is what we have, and this is where things go wrong. This is the cause of the disorder. And so if I'm going to focus my genuine energies on this, if I believe that, I would be irresponsible not to focus my energies there, not on other forms of therapy. If we could, we would fix this mechanically. Okay, I just want to give you the sense of where cognitivism drives you in certain ways of thinking. Now let me contrast this with a different model of mind. Okay, this is the one that Mark was talking about, and it's one that's on the horizon. A uh, very important book, Mind in Life, the idea here is don't model minds on computers, mind them, model them on living systems, interactive systems. Thompson, 2007, tells us, quote, life and mind share a set of basic organizational properties, and the organizational properties distinctive of mind are enriched version of those fundamental to life. Mind is lifelike and life is mind-like, is the idea. So computers don't get a look-in on this model, at least not as the basics of what it is, or the fundaments of what it is to have a mind. Or Alvin Noe, uh, another activist, says, maintains, what biology brings in focus is the living being. But where we discern life, we have everything we need to discern mind. So these are, are different ways of thinking about what's the real roots, capacities of mind. Now, an activist hold that meaningful activity and contentful beliefs and thought and uh, are something that emerge from they're not there at the basis of thought they are something that emerge from self-organizing activities, dynamical activities of sentient beings beings that feel and respond to their environments um, and that is something to be explained it's not the explanatory basis of mind and cognition in other words, we don't get to the discursive style representational thought at the very beginning we get to that late in the day so enactivism incorporates a number of related ideas about basic cognition and the most important of these are things like this the nervous system is an autonomous dynamic system it does not process information in the computational sense but with uh, the right supports it enables the creation of meaning okay so there's two it's not the old idea that we get inherited information from the world and we build a little internal picture and those are the things that were being critiqued. I don't have time to get into this, but we could talk about the developments in AI that make that look less plausible than you might have thought. The, adu- the traditional view has a lot of intuitive attraction, doesn't have so much practical grip when you try and build robots, because they keep falling down if you try and do them the other way, and such like. Sophisticated cognitive processes and structures therefore emerge from appropriate interactions with the world and with others. Okay? we a lot to spell out when we just figure out what appropriate and what those interactions would look like. A cognitive being's world is, importantly, not an external realm represented internally in its brain. You are in this room interacting with parts of it right now. You're not just representing it hallucinatorily. Yeah. Even if you get it right, you're still not just representing me. You're interacting with me. That's the difference. Okay. <coughs> Very different. Totally different picture. If you could just think that way through. Two different views. There's somebody sitting next to you. I can reach out touch you and interact with you, and there you are. On the other view, I just thought I interacted with an (coughs) representation If I can try to make the contrast vivid, okay? Tell that to my wife. (laughs) 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 Uh, She might like that better. But anyway, uh, inactivism offers, therefore, an antidote to these approaches, to mine, that, quote, take representation as their central notion colourful cover. I wouldn't have gone with that, but <clears throat> there we go. Okay. And it's not as if there isn't some movement here. This is, uh, that was 1991. Nowadays there are plenty of people who are becoming more and more sceptical of the story and with developed reasons. These aren't just... These are sound-by quotes, but they're taken from huge books that are very complex that argue these points carefully. Um, here's the conclusion from William Ramsey. Something very interesting is taking place in Cognitive Science cognitive science has taken a dramatic anti-representational turn that's 2007 actually I forgot to note that Uh, 2009, despite the fact that one can cook up a representational story once one has the dynamical explanation the representational gloss does not predict anything about the system's behavior that could not be predicted by dynamical systems alone and that's a strong claim and the arguments here will be that's where the science is going to go and that's going to shift our thinking naturally but look, and here's more. These people actually are cynics about embodied cognition, or worse so. Now they make claims like this. Embodied cognition is sweeping the planet. There is a substantial evidence in support of the pervasive occurrence of embodied cognition. Um, cognitive science has becu- Embodied cognitive science has become an industry. Now those are, check the dates, more recent, and we're slowly, I think you're seeing a trend in, in thinking, shifting in a certain way. Now, don't get me wrong, what I'm peddling to you is a radical shift, and it's not always well received. But I think this is not the mainstream, it's the slipstream. This is where things will go if the arguments go the way they ought to go. So this is a recent review. I've got positive reviews too, I've put up the negative one. So a recent review of my book um, starts out like this, but you can see the conflict. These two ideas cannot live together. Somewhere in body cognition took a wrong turn, and nowhere is that more evident in my book, along with uh, my co-author Eric Mayan, um, the authors of this slender book defend a thesis that would not only repudiate all of cognitive science to date, but that would also require a thorough reconception, reconceptualization of mentality and psychological processes. They deny what seems undeniable. Of course, we aren't the only... Huh? What happened there? Nothing. It was the seams. Yeah, he's stuck in the seams, that's true. Uh, he couldn't just say it's undeniable because he would get slapped. Um, but um, nonetheless and it, we get slapped by the fact that many people have denied it many traditions of thought you know, this, they're grand traditions so there is one Cartesian style way of thinking that is opposed everybody else and it's been running the show uh, and this challenges it so that's why you're looking to friends down the ages and different places in philosophy to make these points it's not going to be a simple straightforward thing and I can certainly say this I have to say this I'm afraid just aligning yourself to these kind of views ain't going to just win you points it's a long-term discussion, but I think it could actually win you grant funding because this is an interesting and a <coughs> developing field. Okay, so this is not a straightforward. There's no easy way to turn. And if you went with the other guys, you get slapped by the new developments. So it's no way that you can just say, "What do the people?" Come back to your point. Nobody can look and say, "What does? What's the truth about the mind?" This is an ongoing, long-term debate. Okay. Radical inactivism assumes that cognition, this is the important central idea, is not all of a piece. It's a pluralist idea. It just thinks that there are many forms of cognition, like there are many forms of living systems. That mentality is not always and everywhere, and certainly not at its root, a matter of representing or a matter of having contents in your mind. Now, frankly, when I put it like that, most people don't find that utterly shocking and unthinkable unless you're already wedded to a certain theory uh, so it's usually not such a horrible thought uh, or impossible thought, um, but for some quarters it, it seems so. What does that all mean? Well, um, well, it means things like this: it, mental basic cognition does not involve contentfully representing the world. Um, biologically basic minds are naturally extensive; they're not just all in the head. They reach out to the environment and they interact over time with the environment. They're not they're not trapped in a kind of, as Andy Clark likes to put it, the magic membrane of the, of the cranium. right? That's the idea. Um, so they, what does that mean then in something like therapy? Let me make this very clear. Supposing you had someone who had a delusion about being Napoleon, you'd want to adjust their thought and you'd think that was the only thing you would do. But actually, many of the ways in which we engage with the environment would not be about going at representations about how you think things are, uh, as opposed to do sometimes doing something like changing somebody's attitudes requires changing perhaps their environment, literally, right? Changing some feature of their environment about what they're interacting with, the kinds of things, changing their space, in fact. Uh, it might actually also change how they interact with things. Uh, recently in this conference in Italy, we were talking about vitality forms, things like the style or the manner of the interaction, not just the what is being represented. So changing those aspects requires focusing on and modifying the nature of the individual's embodied engagements with others or features of their environment, not how they represent um, other minds or features of that environment. So it's a it's a critical shift in focus uh, if this is right. And when it comes to basic social cognition, this is also critical. Um, it's not that you're looking at a subpersonal, spectatorial business of guessing what. Um, guessing at the representational contents of other minds are in these cases. Rather, it's a special form of engaged responsiveness to the intentional attitudes of others as perceived in and through their embodied gestures and expressions. So it's a different picture. I'm engaging directly with people in this, on this level. I'm not trying to guess what they're thinking and then make judgments about this that would inform how their body would move. I'm trying to be more fluid in my interactions with them. Why does this matter actually matter to really a, a, a lot? Um, focusing on the aspects of embodiment, a number of successful therapies have been designed that make targeted adjustments to the focus, style, timing, rhythm of embodied interactions um, along specific parameters. So, just take one, I want time for a gesture. A basic principle of relational development intervention in autism uh, is to tailor interactions with children according to their motor, sensory, and language processing strengths and weaknesses with the goal of enhancing the ability to engage in long-sustained bouts of co-regulated emotional interaction. And that's not a business of getting at the contents of their thinking. That's a business of knowing how and where to re-engage children with autism who just seem unresponsive. And those things have proved very interestingly successful for restarting. Or take this other case. Um, this is a work we've done with people in Italy, uh, in Bambu Pantino Gesù, uh, uh, where they uh, have focused on the relevance of the motor disorders for autistic spectrum disorder and being downplayed for decades owing to attention given to the metacognitive or higher level functions uh, and the lack of appropriate theoretical framework but our model gave them a kind of inspiration and they went on to actually show that they could intervene successfully with kids and they could catch problems with autism by looking at motor disorders that in fact affect through the mirror neuron activity that they seem to think is connected that makes a difference to changing their therapeutic style and catching disorders early on so is this all about embodiment well the idea here is in some basic forms of cognition and social cognition get mischaracterized when they are thought of individuals retrieving information or content from the world which is then processed and manipulated in order to form representations and attribute properties of that world, that's the basic message but surely you'd be thinking some acts, and the ones that you probably deal with most, aren't just about bodies and engagements, right, they're about the discursive elements, um so what do we do with those? Uh, certainly these. it's true that sometimes it's about what people think. I don't deny that. But the point is this, is that if that's the basis, then the way you think contentfully about the world ought to be not a comp- business of computing representations. It's quite a different basis. And that's where we would jump to narrative practices, just finishing off on this as quick as I can. Five minutes, ten minutes? Ten minutes. Okay, so let me skip this one. Um, I was going to give you a, 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 it's a nice quote from Course Guard, but um, I'll give this, jump ahead to, to this. Um, the thought here is, a recent claim is, insofar as I'm able to make decisions and do things for what I take to be good reasons, yeah, when you reflect on your actions, I was, the quote from Course Guard that I just skipped would have given you a, a, an example of this. Um, we have claims like this, I'm creating the narrative of my life rather than just performing from a pre-existing script. So. There are very strong claims circulating about what narration, or how we think about our own lives, shape them, matter to them, they affect them fundamentally. Um, I'm broadly in agreement with this. There are special links, this is what Mark was gesturing at, to what we might call self-shaping. It's because I think normatively about what I should do, that I don't just act. I act because I think back on what I might do, what should I, is this the kind of person I want to be? All those kind of questions. very kind of questions your solutions focus therapy brings straight into focus. Um, So it seems like narrative capacities are very critical for that. Now, nevertheless, I would just warn you, there are, trading on the market, really strong narrativist claims uh, about those links. So those are foundationally committed to ideas, which we don't have time to get into in detail, about how we implicitly narratize our lives as we go through them. I think those are too strong to even be credible. Um, And they embed eminently... Uh, challengeable and hard to defend claims. Chief amongst them is the claim that the content of any coherent self-experience always and everywhere involves implicitly storying it, episodes in one's life so that we can get overboard, I think, on what narrative um, does. And here's Galen Strawson to kind of pour water on this. Uh, he's a famous philosopher, son of a famous philosopher as well. Uh, although some people have narrativizing tendencies when thinking about their life, not all do. So he continually stresses this. There exists a range of possibilities for temporal self-experience. Not everyone tends to experience or live or see his life in a storied way, and he objects ferociously to the attempt to try and absorb everything <coughs> into this one idea. Strawson, uh, here's a good quote, Strawson, Galen Strawson has criticized refreshingly blunt terms what the narratologist James Fellin calls narrative imperialism the widespread view associated with the psychologist Jerome Bruner that human beings see or experience their lives as narratives and that is necessarily a good thing. Uh, Strawson is right that the um, life as narrative rhetoric is unthinkably flabby. Uh, That's how philosophers bash each other. Uh, um, There are compelling reasons to be suspicious I think of strong narratives. I won't be able to detail them here. They're in my recent paper. But those are not reasons, and this is what I really want to do, is separate these two ideas, not reasons for denying that narrative capacities play a central role in enabling self-understanding and self-shaping. So we can just tone down some of these claims. There are weaker versions of this narrative self-shaping hypothesis, versions that steer clear strong mag- narrativism's problematic um, commitments and excesses. It's easy to find that. And so I just want to keep babies and water, you know, together. Um... uh, here's a quote from Peter Goldie who died recently but he was a very very uh, good philosopher working on this narratives we weave about our lives can profoundly affect how we respond to our past and future, how we lead our lives in the future so more modest claims like this, so that's not sounding very modest, it doesn't have all the connotations of of many of the other theories I think can be defended and supported. My own stuff on the narrative practice hypothesis which um, was mentioned is a developmental claim which claims that narratives themselves real narratives in the environment are part of what shape our capacities, enabling us to think about ourselves in terms of reasons. So that kind of closes the loop. So we move from embodied and active practices into social cultural uh, practices that involve dealing with artifacts like the productions of narratives. And that gives us new capacities, new ways of dealing with others. And that is an interactive capacity and one that is already shaped by engagement with others and it's out in the world, it's not in your head. And you don't get it for free, from your ancestors, you have to work for that. So that changes the game for us, I think. So the idea behind it is just like many animals create external structures that shape their environments, you know this already, spiders fashion webs, beavers build dams, those creations in turn influence and shape the animals that create them. That's certainly true in biology. And I want to say that the same thing is true of human beings. Um, uh, we create communal artifacts, stories with special properties By featuring in our shared storytelling practices, they ground our capacity to act for and to make sense of actions in terms of reasons. And recent work uh, in cognitive science has been going this way under the uh, heading of Scaffolded Mind Hypothesis and uh, a new book by Kim Strelney called The uh, Evolved Apprentice. We learn through evolved, you know, we, we gain our most important skills by being incorporated and brought into existing practices. Um, which holds that human cognitive capacities both depend on and have been transformed by environmental resources, not stuff you receive from your brain at birth or your genes. Primarily, uh, the focus is in a different place. Okay. Note this. This is five minutes. Good, I'm almost there. Uh, If we accept the narrative practice hypothesis, I mentioned earlier the issues about autism and theory of mind, And you might think, well, this is going to leave us empty if we go this new way. But I love this. This is from somebody working in the field who's talked about the narrative practice hypothesis in this respect. He says, if we accept the narrative practice hypothesis and so deny the existence of modular theory of mind, then are we robbed of an explanation of autism? So this is where theory and practice start to get into into correspondence. The answer is no, because the theory of mind explanation reveals itself never to have been a sufficient one in the first place. So the idea that it looks like, and it's very compelling, might also be misleading us systematically about how best to direct our resources to deal with these sorts of problems. And we get this a lot. What what later looks like a mind-reading deficit may be the result of dynamic process in which the child's lack of emotional interaction has intensified specific early sensory challenges and derailed the development of critical, social, emotional, communicative, and cognitive capacities preventing them from engaging in the kind of social cultural practices that give them the capacity to think about themselves in certain terms rather than the failure of a mechanical module. So this is why this starts to make a big difference. Which of these two views, as James would say, philosophically is right will matter crucially to where we spend our energies and efforts therapeutically? Okay, that's the idea. So clinical practice, I'll leave you with two thoughts and actually I will finish on time. Um... Here's the idea. Against the rationalists, I like this little quote from Dennett, arguments, no matter what, how watertight, often fall on deaf ears. I am myself the author of arguments that I consider rigorous and unanswerable. Me too. But uh, that often do not so much as get rebuted or even dismissed as simply ignored. I want to play a more direct role to change what is ignorable by whom. For this, I have to use a more artful method. I have to tell a story. You don't want to be swayed by a story. Well, I know you won't be swayed by formal argument, and you won't even listen to a formal argument for my conclusion. Now, the idea here is, I think, in solution-focused therapy it's probably not an accident that there's a relation with narratives. Part of what you're doing is getting people to think about, reflect on, narrativize their lives, I guess. That's what my view is. So I think this is not an accident you don't use argument or they don't give you argument in order to kind of convince themselves about what's important to them. Okay. One last final thought, uh, and I My proposal would be that's no accident, by the way. Um, One final thought I can't resist. Now I get to bring him on stage, Wittgenstein, for just one moment. (laughs) Always in the background. very important comment he makes. If life becomes hard to bear, we think of a change in our circumstances. But the most important and effective change, a change in our own attitude, hardly even occurs to us. And the resolution to take such a step is very difficult for us. Your work, I think, involves changing people's attitudes. And the question here is what does that actually come to? What does it involve? And I suggest we have two very different models, very different models about what that would be. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please come back for more. Again, more information is available at www.asfct.org.